Okay, here we go. Start with a question. What happens when you die? Man, that's a big, that's a big way to start a sermon, right? Some of y'all, for me, it's like PTSD transported back to like high school participating in the local Baptist church's judgment house. Did anybody participate in that sort of stuff? Yeah, that's not, what I'm, that's, that's not what I'm getting at this morning. Like, if you were to die right now, where would you? That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. So take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. Um, what happens when you die? This is a question that has um, captured humans' imaginations probably since the beginning of humanity. We see in this gospel reading, even during the time of Jesus, while Jesus was on earth, he and uh, the Sadducees were arguing and wrestling over this very question, what happens when you die? It's something that thousands of years later, despite our sort of scientific and technological advances, like we're still left with a mystery. And it still stirs up in us all sorts of feelings, perhaps anxieties, perhaps you want to be lighthearted about it because it's unavoidable and that's a way that you can avoid it. It it stirs up all sorts of stuff in you. So here's what I want you to do. Welcome to Christ City Church. This is, we love feelings here. Um, Here's what I want you to do is, I want you to take a moment and close your eyes and be still and quiet and to be aware of, to be present to what's happening inside of you when you hear that question. What happens when you die? So pause now and and be aware of your feelings. Now open your eyes. Perhaps there's fear or sadness or confusion or anxiety Or again, maybe wanting to avoid it because it's so big and mysterious and that's perhaps easier than really letting yourself feel what's happening inside of you. I really love uh, listening to podcasts and there's a classic podcast. Um, If you're a podcast listener, you've surely encountered it called This American Life. And the host, Ira Glass, if you've just that classic podcast voice that he has, um, I'm gonna read to you a quote uh, from Ira Glass an episode about 12 years old from This American Life. As he talks about and shares about what's happening inside of him as he wrestles with this very mysterious question. This is what Ira Glass says. So I was six years old and I knew I was going to die and my mom and my dad could not help me. Nobody could help me. I'll be dead forever. Galaxies would spin, humans would travel to other worlds, and I would miss all of that. And I would lie awake at night, scared to fall asleep, because sleep seemed no different than death. You were gone, not moving, not talking, not thinking, not aware, not aware. What could be more frightening? What could be bigger? There's no deeper sense of powerlessness that we feel as humans as when we wrestle with this question. What happens when you die? And so there are all these sorts of feelings that are stirred up inside of us. But as followers of Jesus, there's another feeling to add to that feelings cocktail. 
And it's a feeling that has the potential to inspire real greatness and change in your life and in your world. It's a feeling that's, I think, behind all of the greatest moments in history, all of the greatest movements in human history. And so I want to explore from both scripture and Christian tradition how we can wrestle with this question. And then I want to put this new feeling out there for you to consider that you might add to this this feelings cocktail. So first, what does scripture and what does Christian tradition teach? This, I'll say up front, um, this is something that people do spend thousands and thousands of hours <laughs> talking about and wrestling through and conversing over. And we're going to spend about five minutes. And so this is a real flyby. But all of this falls underneath the banner of something called eschatology, eschatology, which its content is as confusing as the word itself, eschatology. It, it comes from two Greek words, eschatos, which means last or end, and then logos, which means word about or study of. So eschatology is the study of or the word about the end or the last times. And there's a lot, and especially in our Western modern church, there's a lot of eschatological confusion. There's especially an emphasis on heaven. What happens when you die? Heaven. And we're given this image, I know I was given this image when I was a child of like floating around for all of eternity, which as a kid seems like a really long time, like floating around on a cloud with wings and like playing harps, right? That's the image I had as a kid. That's the image that I was given. And I don't know about y'all if, if you had that image as well, but when I was a small child, I'm like, that does not sound very awesome to me, right? Like, I don't, I don't, do I really want that? Like for eternity, that's a long time. I'd say even that in our modern Western church, especially the modern Western church that many of us grew up in, that there's, there's even an obsession about heaven. Let me, let, me, let me prove it to you. Let me show you this. So there are a handful of books that you've probably encountered that are in this genre called heavenly tourism. Seriously, there's a new genre for this type of book called heavenly tourism. Um, they'll put one on the screen, The Boy Who Came Back From Heaven. It was a book in 2010, and then it was made into a movie. A few others, 90 Minutes in Heaven, came out in 2004 and has sold over 6 million copies. Heaven is for Real came out in 2010 and has sold over 10 million copies. And then this book, The Boy Who Came Back From Heaven, came out in 2010 and has sold over a million copies, was made into a movie. So if you want to write a best-selling book, Heavenly Tourism, like there you go, there's your genre. This book, The Boy Who Came Back From Heaven, again, written in 2010, by a young boy named Alex Malarkey, who was in a car accident with his father. It was a near-death experience, and he wrote this story about his experience in this near-death experience of, of heaven. And he wrote in 2015, let me read it for you. This is what he wrote a few years after the book was released. He wrote, I did not die, and I did not go to heaven. 
I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to do so. They should read the Bible. So that's my question is, like, well, what, so what does, what does the Bible actually have to say about this? What does our tradition as followers of Jesus have to say about this? And I'll say this, that it, it doesn't have a whole lot to say about heaven. In fact, we're obsessed with life after death. And scripture, especially the New Testament, has a lot more to say about life after life after death. Here's what I mean. We're obsessed with this idea of life after death, heaven, what's ha- what happens when you die, but scripture, the emphasis in scripture is less about life after death and more about what happens after that, life after life after death, as the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright writes. And let me unpack this in the New Testament and you'll, you'll see what N.T. Wright means by life after life after death. So, let me show you a couple passages in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is a packed chapter in Scripture. Um, this dense chapter that Paul wrote in this letter to the church at Corinth. Um, there's so much in here. It's captivated imaginations for hundreds of years. I want to show you a couple of passages and you'll see what I mean by the density in this one section in scripture. But listen here for the emphasis. Heaven, life after death, or life after life after death. So first, my, some of my favorite verses in all of scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse one. I'm going to read a lot of scripture here. And I know, I'll, I'll admit this for myself, that sometimes when this happens in a sermon, like I kind of like zone out. Uh, but my hope for you, my, my challenge is that you kind of like zone in here, okay? And then you, you're welcome to zone out after that, okay? So there's just a couple of large sections of scripture that I want you to, to be present for. First, starting in verse one, they'll be on the screen so you can follow along. This is what Paul writes. Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, the good news I proclaimed to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the pattern that Paul sets out of first importance, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then let me read for you a section that comes much later in that chapter in 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 50. This is the long and dense stuff, so follow along with me. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, 
The dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable, these perishable mortal bodies must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortal, with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Listen to this, man, some of the most beautiful words penned. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the pattern of Jesus his life, his death, and his resurrection. That pattern is our pattern as well. And the emphasis in the New Testament isn't on life after death. It's on life after life after death. It's on resurrection. That just like Jesus was was clothed with an imperishable body, an immortal body. If you read the gospel accounts, the the accounts of the post-resurrection Jesus, they're amazing. Like, There were some resemblances to himself before his crucifixion, but he also was different because people didn't recognize him, which probably also has to do with the fact that they just watched him be killed, so you're not expecting him to be walking around, right? But there were changes. And then he could even do these sorts of like miraculous things, like the disciples are in a room together and Jesus isn't there, and then boom, all of a sudden Jesus is there. The perishable is clothed with the imperishable. Resurrection life. Death no longer wins. Death is no longer victorious. Death no longer has a sting anymore because of the finished work of Jesus. And what we look forward to is not just life after death, though scripture does have things to say about heaven. But the emphasis, what we look forward to isn't life after death, but it's resurrection life. Life after life after death. The pattern of Jesus is our pattern as well. New resurrection bodies. And then let me read to you a passage from Revelation 21, the end of the story, the very last book in our scripture. A handful of verses again. Revelation 21, starting at verse one. This is the future vision that the apostle John has given that he records for our benefit. He, he writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, or perhaps better translated, a renewed heaven, recreated heaven and recreated, renewed earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, Jesus said, behold, I am making all things new renewed resurrection, imperishable bodies and a renewed creation itself. What a grand vision. Like that's, 
infinitely more grand of a vision than I was given when I was a small kid. The vision isn't some like disembodied future reality, like where I'm like this weird wisp of a spirit floating around with wings, with a harp. But the beautiful reality, especially of the New Testament, is a very embodied reality that's future. We'll talk more about this in a minute, but that's also now. Not this disembodied future reality, like, gosh, that doesn't sound very enticing to me, even as a kid, like filled with imagination. It's not that. It's a very embodied future and present reality. Whew, man, that's good. That's deep. Go down the rabbit hole on that. That's the, that's the emphasis of scripture, but I also want to show you, we just set it together, but this is clearly the emphasis, I would argue, for all of Christian tradition until perhaps the past 200 years or so. Uh, so we just said the Apostles' Creed, so let me just remind you of the last section that we said together. We all said that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic, the universal church, the saints, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Christian tradition mirrors this apostolic vision that Paul and the other writers of the New Testament, that Jesus himself gives us. So what I want you to see, this kind of second part here, is that this is like, this is like heady, like theological stuff, right? Eschatology. We're, let's talk about eschatology this morning. But what I want you to see is this, that this has like dramatic and drastic implications for your life right now. This isn't just like theological music that like doesn't matter at all for your Monday tomorrow. Like this matters for you right here and right now. Because if this idea of resurrection can like sink down into our bones and perhaps replace this less biblical vision that we have, this disembodied future of heaven. Like if the idea of resurrection can sink down and grip our hearts, then I believe all of those feelings are still there. Sadness, confusion, fear, anxiety. Because it's not disembodied, it's embodied. But added to that mix is this new sensation deep in our bones. And it's a sensation called hope. Hope. Now, one of my favorite movies that I hope you've seen, Hope, uh, is The Shawshank Redemption. It's, let's see, 25 years old. So if you haven't seen it yet, I'm going to spoil the movie for you. I'm sorry. Um, but it's been out there. So if you plan on watching it this afternoon, like you're welcome to do what you need to do to zone out for 30 seconds. So when you watch the Shawshank Redemption, you can't help but pick up on this underlying theme of hope that happens throughout the movie. And you may even remember in the movie, maybe it's been 25 years since you've seen it and you need some refreshing. Um, there are two main characters. One is named Andy, who's thrown into jail um, unjustly, uh, he's blamed, uh, he's innocent, but he's blamed for the murder of his wife. So Andy finds himself in jail unjustly. There's another man, a man he befriends in, in jail named Morgan Freeman, not named Morgan Freeman, played by Morgan Freeman. 
Ah, <laughs> correct this. His name is Red, played by Morgan Freeman. And at one point in the movie, Red says over lunchtime to Andy, this famous line, he says, Andy, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. But he doesn't know the hope that's inside of Andy because all along, Andy, over the course of 25 years, spends a little bit of time every day chiseling away at the prison's, the cell wall and making an escape for himself and hiding it from the guards every day for 25 years. So Andy, spoiler alert, eventually escapes and he developed this deep friendship with Red. And so Red eventually gets released from prison as well on parole. And he goes to this place that Andy and Red had talked about and he finds there a letter from Andy let me read to you one line that Andy wrote to Red. He said, remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. And then he gives Red some instructions like, my friend, I want to be with you. I want to spend some time with you. I want to see you again. And so he gives instructions about where Red could find him. And so the, the movie ends with Red breaking his parole and traveling to meet his friend Andy again. And it ends with this beautiful monologue as he's on a bus and as he's traveling, as he's packing his stuff. And let me read for you this longer monologue that, that Red says at the end of the movie. I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel a free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. Listen to this. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and to shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. Hope is a dangerous thing. Perhaps a different way to say that is hope is a powerful thing. A thing powerful enough to drive Andy to chisel away every day for 25 years. I believe behind every major momentous movement throughout the course of human history, hope has been there, inspiring a person or inspiring a group of people. Why would such leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. work to his very death to bring about justice in the world? Because he had hope, because he had a dream, something that he hoped for. Jesus himself, why would Jesus live the life that he lived? Why would Jesus die the death that he died? Hebrews chapter 12, verse two says, because of the joy, because of the hope set before him. Hope is a dangerous and powerful thing. And as the idea of resurrection seeps into your bones and into your soul, you'll find yourself filled with and surprised by hope. And so I wanna just, just show you three ways that I think hope can affect you right now. Resurrection hope, like a real rooted and grounded hope. Resurrection hope, how does it change you right now, this afternoon, tomorrow? Three quick things. 
First, hope fuels perseverance in the midst of injustice. Hope fuels perseverance in the midst of injustice. This is probably what's happening in the Job passage that we read. Job says this famous line, I know that my Redeemer lives and I shall see him face to face. This idea of Redeemer for Job is, is a vindicator. Because if you, if you remember the story of Job, you know that Job is a righteous person. Yet he's inflicted with like insane suffering. And he's, he and his friends are wrestling like, what did I do to deserve this? Why do we have this sort of suffering as humanity? I did nothing. I'm innocent. Where's my vindication? And we see here that, that Job has hope. I know that my Redeemer lives. So this resurrection hope can fuel perseverance personally for you when you're walking through injustice. Do you ever feel like, like Job, why, why do so many bad things happen to me? Like I look at other people's lives and like good things just seem to happen. Why can't that ever happen to me? Resurrection hope gives you perseverance to live into that because you know that your redeemer lives, that death has been defeated, that the greatest curse, the greatest enemy of death has been done away with through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So it fuels great perseverance in you personally. The resurrection and this hope that we have in the resurrection also fuels perseverance when you're dealing with injustice on a societal or systemic level. Let me read a quote from N.T. Wright. He wrote in this really, really good book called Surprised by Hope, I would recommend to you this, this beautiful line, people who believe in the resurrection in God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. Unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. What would, I can't help but dream Christ City Church like if this resurrection hope gripped our hearts. Like what would it look for, like for us to work unstoppably motivated to bring that future reality into our present reality, that future new world into our present world. Hope, resurrection hope, fuels perseverance in the midst of injustice. Second, hope provides comfort in the midst of suffering. Hope provides comfort in the midst of suffering. You know that some of the most hurtful Situations for people come when, when Christians give sorts of like pithy, unhelpful reactions or responses to suffering. Have you ever experienced that? Like you're walking through a deep season of suffering and there are pro- like well-meaning people in your life who give sorts of pithy responses. Like all things work together for good, brother. Like don't worry, it's gonna be okay. God has a purpose for everything. That's not what I'm talking about here. Resurrection hope gives you a real deep-seated embodied. That's like disembodied. Like don't be present in the feelings and in the pain that you're experiencing now. That's disembodied. Like the boy who went to heaven sort of stuff. Like let's just get away from here. Let's get out of my current situation. Resurrection hope says there's hope even in the midst of life's deepest and greatest sufferings. A few years ago, a friend of mine uh, woke up, uh, was going about his day, and 
early into his day, he got a phone call from his wife with, I can't imagine any worse news for any parent to receive. And his wife told him that their three-year-old baby boy could not wake up that morning. Unimaginable suffering and grief, pain. And my friend wrote later something that I want to I read for you. Here's what he said. We are profoundly and devastatingly sad and will grieve the loss of our sweet boy for the rest of our lives. But we can live with hope, peace, and gratitude, knowing that the promises of the gospel are true and that knowing that Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. Our God lost his son, and so have we. God's son was raised from the dead, and so was ours. All thanks be to Christ. Our precious boy knew Jesus and is with him now. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God remains good. Not disembodied, like not getting away from grief or pain, feeling the grief and pain every day for the rest of their lives. But in the midst of that, hopeful, because the promises of scripture are true, because the reality of resurrection had taken root deep in their soul. Resurrection can provide comfort in the midst of suffering. And then last is hope isn't just about the future. Hope is about now. Resurrection is about life now. So eschatology, that big word, is future-oriented, but it's also oriented to the present. Jesus says, um, it's recorded for us in John 17. Jesus says, this is eternal life. My vision that I was given about eternal life is it's something in the future, life after death. But this is what Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life, isn't this future reality, eternal life, resurrection life, hope in the resurrection is now. It's a very embodied present reality. Feeling, experiencing the whole range of emotions as a human embodied. But in the midst of that, hoping in what Jesus has done and hoping for what we look forward to, a resurrected body, and a new creation, and a new earth. So that inspires this sort of invitation that Jesus gives. We read this all the time at Christ City because it's so beautiful. But this invitation that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 11, this, this invitation is not for some future day. This invitation is for now. So let me close by reading these words from Jesus. This is the invitation. This is the life that he extends to you here and now. Jesus says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely 
and lightly. So may we, what if we, Christ City Church, lived closely with this Jesus who has lived, who has died, and who lives again. We lived so closely with him that we got tastes of this resurrection life here and now. Let me pray for that for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the hope of the resurrection, perseverance in the midst of injustice, comfort in the midst of suffering, and real life, eternal life right now. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a taste. Just give us a taste of that. And would you stir up hope deep down in our souls? And would it change us here and now, today, this afternoon, tomorrow morning, Monday morning, inspire hope in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen.